Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan and thank you for joining us today. In today's episode, we're going to talk about science in the Bible, but particularly in the Law of Moses. So last time we looked at all the different aspects of science that was explained in the book of Genesis, but we can clearly see other instances of times where God explained science to us in a way that was easy for us to understand in the modern era, but yet was not as understood back then. For example, you're going to see that many of the things that God talked about in the Old Testament regarding scientific fact was because the world of microbiology, for example, was not yet understood. So they didn't understand that there were microorganisms back then, or that there was bacteria or viruses. And so it makes sense when you put it into this context as to why God did certain things, and to keep them safe, and to keep them healthy. So we're going to look today in the Law of Moses, particularly Leviticus and Deuteronomy, to see where God, being the great scientist who developed science himself, is showing us facts that were way ahead of its time. Not only does this prove that God is ruler over the universe and he is far beyond our understanding, but it also shows that, as usual, the Bible is correct and always has been. So let's start our time today in Leviticus chapter 7. Let's begin in verse 21. The Lord says, When anyone touches anything unclean, whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal or any unclean detestable thing, and eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings which belong to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. So not only is he establishing a law of purity and holiness that honors him, but he's also protecting the Israelites from themselves. Because as we know, contaminated food is a huge problem. So often we go to a restaurant, if you were to prepare food with unwashed hands, or you don't have a hairnet on, or the meat's been sitting out too long, then it will develop bacteria or it will develop viruses that will stay on the meat and then when you ingest it it will provide food poisoning or or some form of illness that no one wants to have and yet back then they would not have understood it like that because they didn't understand what bacteria and germs were but God did and he did it in such a way as to have them comply but not necessarily explain to them the minute details, because it just was not time yet. So we see some sanitary practices here. And if you go a few verses down to verse 23, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall not eat any fat from an ox, a sheep, or a goat. Also the fat of an animal which dies, and the fat of an animal torn by beasts, may be put to any other use, but you must certainly not eat it. For whoever eats the fat of the animal from which an offering by fire is offered to the Lord, even the person who eats shall be cut off from his people. 
that may seem a little harsh and severe for eating fat. But there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, in the sacrificial system, fat was the prized portion of the meat. As we know today, and you hear that in the culinary world, fat is flavor. And of course, we want the best offered to our Lord. But secondly is, he understands that excess amounts of fat ingestion will clog your arteries and will cause heart disease. And so this was something that, again, they would not have understood by teaching them medical truth. So instead, he explains it in this way. But we understand it today as God safeguarding them from heart disease and other issues like that. So that is ahead of its time. And then here's another one. Verse 26. You are not to eat any blood, either a bird or animal, in any of your dwellings. Any person who eats any blood, even that person shall be cut off from his people. Why? Why can't we eat blood? Blood will make you sick, but also we're going to look at another section of Scripture where God finds blood to be very precious to him. We may remember that Jesus Christ died for our sins with his blood. Therefore, there's some significance to blood, because God is going to show us here in a minute that blood is the life of the person. This was not completely understood until mid-1800s, maybe even early 1900s, that blood is the life of the person. And in the context of the crucifixion, if Jesus died for the sins of the world in a bloodless manner, then it would not have accomplished anything. Because in the economy of God, blood is life. Therefore, it is unholy in God's eyes for us to eat blood. Not only that, but it's also not good for you. It will not settle well in your stomachs, and it's not healthy. Let's go now to Leviticus chapter 11. Let's begin in verse 9. These you may eat, whatever is in the water, all that have fins and scales, those in the water, in the seas, or in the rivers, you may eat. But whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales, among all the teeming life of the water, and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you, and they shall be abhorrent to you. You may not eat of their flesh, and their carcasses you shall detest. Whatever in the water does not have fins and scales is abhorrent to you. So what's the significance of this scientifically? Well, what he's describing here is a healthy dietary law. Scripture is stating here to avoid any creatures which do not have fins or scales. We know today that usually if they don't have fins or scales, they are typically bottom feeders. And the problem with bottom feeders is that they tend to consume waste and are more likely to carry disease than any other kind of fish. So for this reason, God made it abhorrent to them in order to protect them from disease. Likewise, in verses 13 through 19, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it talks about 
birds. It talks about particular kinds of birds that are not to be eaten here. For example, the eagle, the vulture, the falcon, ostrich, owls, hawks. What do they all have in common? Well, they all eat carrion. What is carrion? It is putrefying flesh. They eat rotten flesh. They're scavengers. And scavengers eat diseased, rotten food. Therefore, they spread disease. They are more likely to make you sick if you were to eat them than any other bird. So for this reason, God warned them not to eat of them and to consider them completely unclean. Don't even be around them. Why? So that they won't transmit any disease to you. So this isn't just because God is picky, but he has very real applications and very real scientific reasons for making these laws. And when you put it in this context, it's very fascinating. Let's go now to Leviticus chapter 13. And here we will find a couple of things. The entire chapter 13 is a diagnosis of medical conditions, particularly leprosy. And so this is one of the earliest forms of medical diagnosis that we see in the Bible. And this was performed by the priests of their day. But not only that, but especially if you get to verses 45 and 46, it describes medical quarantine. Read what it says. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So they didn't understand what this meant, but, but God instituted these practices again to protect the general population. So he commanded the Israelites to isolate those with contagious diseases until they were cured. That is the basic principle of quarantine. And for those of us who remember the last couple of years when we were in COVID-19, that is very fresh in our minds and we can understand what it means to have medical quarantine. But God instituted this thousands of years ago to a people that did not understand this. So this is one of the many things that are in the book of Leviticus where God is describing basic public hygiene in order to protect the general population from disease and whatnot. Likewise, there's a few places in the book of Leviticus where it says that when you need to use the restroom, when you need to relieve yourself, especially if you were going to poop, God commanded the Israelites to do that outside of the camp as well, to dig a hole, do your business, and then cover it up outside the camp. For one, the smell, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. But also, we know today that feces has a lot of bacteria and a lot of potential for illness transmission. So again, this is healthy practices of hygiene in the Bible. Let's turn now to Leviticus chapter 15, and look with me at verse 13. 
Now when the man with a discharge becomes cleansed from his discharge, then he shall count off for himself seven days for his cleansing. He shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in running water and will become clean. This was something that was not practiced very often in the ancient world. When dealing with disease, God is telling them to wash with running water. So for centuries, people had naively been washing themselves in standing water. But we know today that in order to wash the germs away, where you're not just sitting in your own filth, you need to be in fresh running water in order to be cleansed from whatever it is. So this was not understood why they had to do it this way, but God is telling them to do it this way because it is the most hygienic practice, and we understand that very well today. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 17. So let me refer to the verses that I was talking about earlier in how blood is life. And this is in verses 11 and 14. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Very important scripture right there. And then verse 14. For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, You are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. You see how this makes more sense now? He is telling us that the blood is what gives you life in your flesh. This was not understood until maybe about 100 to 120 years ago. Because this was a common practice even right before World War I, where there was something that they did called bloodletting. A basic medical practice in those days was the idea that the blood that was within you had some sort of illness flowing through it. And so what they thought was, let's go ahead and drain the blood out of the person to remove the illness. And so sick people were typically bled. And what this did was kill more people than save them. Think of somebody like George Washington, for example. He died as a result of his bloodletting when he was sick. Because that is not how it's done. We know today that healthy blood is necessary to bring life-giving nutrients to every cell in our bodies. So, long before they understood this function, God is declaring it so, that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and that there is an immune system, there's a microbiology that they do not yet understand. So this is what I meant by God saying that the life is in the blood. And if we understand that completely, then it really makes what Jesus did for us much more significant. Because what he did was shed his life for us. Likewise, in chapter 17, it talks about how the blood of animals can carry disease, and that's why you're not supposed to eat it. 
Not only is it sacred to the Lord, but you are more likely to get sick if you drink blood. Let's go to chapter 18. Beginning in verse 6, God is talking about something that is very important when it comes to sexual relationships. Verse 6 says, None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, that is, the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover, for their nakedness is yours. And so you start going down this long list here of all these different people that are related to you that you are not to have relations with. This is called incest. And not only is there a spiritual aspect to this, because when two become one flesh, there's something very profound about that. But also, it talks about whose nakedness is involved. So, long story short, to marry near of kin in the ancient world was common. If you remember, Cain married his sister. Abraham married Sarah, who was a blood relative in some way, like a cousin. But beginning in the law of Moses, God forbade this practice. And there's a couple of reasons for that. For one, genetic mutations were becoming a problem. God anticipated that when people started to commit incest, their offspring would have genetic defects or issues. But secondly is, there were enough people in the world at this point to where they didn't need to practice that anymore. Back in the time of Abraham, it had only been a couple hundred years since the flood. So there weren't a lot of people on the face of the earth so your selection pool was very limited. But when you get to the historical point where Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt, the camp of Israel was almost a million people, more or less. So there were plenty of people to choose from. So he's telling us right here in the Law of Moses that incest is no longer acceptable. Today, we understand that the risk of passing on genetic abnormalities to your children is much greater if you marry a close relative, because relatives are more likely to carry the same defective gene. So for this reason, it is unacceptable to commit incest of any kind. And from a spiritual aspect, it's also incorrect to think that, because it's a huge fantasy right now in the world of adult entertainment, where you seek after the forbidden fruit, which is the stepmom or the handsome stepdad. And this is disgusting. Even though they're not blood related to you, they belong to someone else. And for that reason, it is considered adultery. So it is not something to fantasize about, nor is it anything to glorify. Sexual relations belongs between a, one husband and one wife, in the context of marriage. That's it. There is no other standard that the Bible talks about besides that.
Chapter 18 also describes how homosexuality is wrong and it is sinful. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Now, Romans chapter 1 seems to imply something about this as well. Paul is very clear in some of his writings that homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God, as well as many other people. So homosexuals are not in a category of their own, let's be clear. But there is something that he says about it where men having intercourse with men creating in themselves the due penalty of their error. So what I've believed, as well as many other theologians, is what that's saying there is there were natural consequences that come from homosexuality. So I believe that all of these sexually transmitted diseases that are in existence today have one source, and that's homosexuality, as well as bestiality. So these two things are talked about in the Law of Moses as being a perversion. They are not to be practiced at all, and it's for this reason. Not only in the context of God's structure of marriage, but also humans are supposed to mate with humans. You're not supposed to lust after an animal. You are not an animal yourself. And so why would you go down to that level? So it's very important we understand this, that not only is there a moral reason, but there's also a physiological reason, too, to protect you from disease and things like that. Moving away from that topic, let's go to chapter 19. If you go to verse 19, the Lord says this, You are to keep my statutes. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle, you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. Now, I'm not going to focus so much on the clothing or the cattle, but genetic mixing is indeed a problem, and God is addressing it here thousands of years ago. The Bible is warning us against mixing seeds, and this will likely result in either an inferior crop or a dangerous crop, one that is not going to be beneficial to us. So there is growing evidence that unnatural crops are harmful to you. Or, in today's world, with all the genetic engineering going on, they don't create as healthy of food as they used to. And for the sake of making them large or making them resistant to insects or helping them last longer on the shelf, we've taken away from the healthiness of food and have perverted it for the sake of greed and money. So this is why God is telling the Israelites not to mix seeds. Yeah, they didn't do genetic engineering back then, but he's teaching them early on that you should not be doing that because you will have something worse than what you want. So he's giving them good advice of agricultural truth in the Old Testament. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. 
On the same vein of agricultural truth, we're going to find something else that's very interesting here. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's lengthy, but beginning in verse 22, you have this section here where it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, moreover, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor gather the gleaning of your harvest. You are to leave them for the needy and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So for one, it helps the poor, right? That's an obvious thing. But also, it's talking about soil conservation. Not only was the land to lay fallow every seventh year, which is described elsewhere in Scripture, how on the seventh year they were not to touch the crops at all, but also God instructed farmers to leave the gleanings when reaping their fields and not to reap the corners or the sides of their fields. And there were several purposes for this. For one, vital soil minerals would be maintained in the area. They either would not be depleted, or they wouldn't be carried off by water or by wind. The hedgerow would limit wind erosion, so your soil won't blow away over time because of wind. And like we established, the poor get to eat the gleanings. And this would be an excellent way to solve issues of hunger and poverty. Because think about it like this. The current estimates are that approximately 4 billion metric tons of soil are lost from United States croplands every year. That's a lot of soil that is being wasted because we are not following God's original law. Much of this soil depletion in the U.S. could be avoided if we followed God's commands. So there's a reason why God does say these things, not just for the people of Israel, but for us as well. He, being the creator of all things, is telling us how to interact with his environment. So certainly we need to be paying attention. Now turn with me to chapter 25. And while the laws concerning the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee are the overarching themes in here, it does mention pest control. Farmers are still plagued with insects today, right? That's pretty common. God gave a surefire remedy to control pests back here in this chapter. Moses commanded Israel to set aside one year in seven when no crops were raised. Why is this important? Because what insects would do is they would winter. They would stay within the stalks of last year's harvest. They would hatch in the spring, and then they are perpetuated by laying eggs in the new crop. If the crop is denied one year in seven, the pests have nothing to subsist upon and they are thereby controlled. So they attack your crops because they're starving, because it's in their instinct to want to do this. But if you give them one year to do all that, then you won't have any more problems with them. So this seems to suggest that this is God's method of pest control. So that's something for us to pay attention to if we were to follow his law. For now, I think we are done with Leviticus. 
So let's move to the book of Deuteronomy. Turn with me to chapter 14. Let's look at verse 8. The pig, because it divides the hoof, but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, nor touch their carcasses. When I think of Jews, I think of pork, because I know that that is the most common thing that we understand about them, that they cannot eat. Same with Muslims as well. They can't eat pork. What I find interesting about this is there's a reason why God did not allow them to enjoy things like sausage and bacon, which to us seems like a crime today. But the reason why is because it had to be cooked a certain way to be safe to eat, and we understand that today through modern science. Pork has a parasite within it called trichinosis, and this is an infection of parasites that occurs from undercooked pork. So, because they didn't understand how to properly cook the pork, then God just banned it completely. But when you come to the time where Jesus enters into the world, he declares all things to be clean at that point. So there was a better understanding of how these things were to be cooked at the time, as well as God making it clear that no meat is sin. There is just a reason why he forbade them to do it in the Old Testament to protect them, much like he did with everything else. So he told them to avoid swine because if you don't cook it properly, you will be exposing yourself to dangerous parasites. And nobody wants that. Go back with me to chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. Look at verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. So when it talks about heaven and the highest heavens, this is kind of confusing at a surface level. So when they talked about heaven, they're talking about the sky. That's what they would call heaven back then. There is a real place called heaven that we go to when we're saved at the end of our life. But when it talks about heaven in the Old Testament, it's talking about the sky. But then it talks about the heaven of heavens, which is talking about outer space. And then it talks also about the third heaven, which is later on in Scripture, but we'll get to that later. So long before we sent telescopes into space, they are declaring that there is something outside of this planet. And so that is very interesting to think about. But secondly is how the heavens that they described consisted of our immediate atmosphere, and then the heaven of heavens was everything outside of it, which was the vast reaches of outer space. And then, of course, the third heaven indicating God's holy abode, which is where his throne is located. Now, again, this is not a physical location. This is a spiritual thing. So let's not get confused with that. And lastly, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 23. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. You shall also have a place outside the camp and go out there. And you shall have a spade among your tools. And it shall be when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and shall turn 
to cover up your excrement. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy, and he must not see anything indecent among you, or he will turn away from you. So this is what I was talking about, about how the sanitation industry was birthed through God. So he commanded the people to go to the restroom outside the camp. They were to dig a hole or a latrine and cover up their waste. They continued to do it this way until World War I. You're talking about about 100 years ago, people were still not isolating human waste. And yet, God described it like this over 3,000 years ago. So there's something very important to understand that God is sovereign over all his creation, yes, but he is also all-wise, well beyond our understanding. And so I love how the Bible talks about these things as, at a superficial level, it just looks like a bunch of laws, but there's practical, real reasons why these things have to happen. And in our modern era, we understand it better than they ever would. And so I find it very interesting how God is making yet another way to show that he is true, to show that he is evident within his creation. And so this should just leave us in awe and wonder and have talking points with people who are skeptical of what the Bible says. The Bible has never been wrong. And the more that time goes on, the more it's going to be found to be right. From what we found in recent archaeology, as well in scientific discovery, the Bible continues to be supreme, and it always will. And that, my friends, is science in the law of Moses. So next time we're going to look at science in the book of Job and in the Psalms. And we're going to see a lot of fascinating stuff in there. Until then, thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.